Today's scripture reading comes from John 7, 37 to 38. I will be reading from the ESV. The passage should also be on your screens. Let us hear what God is saying to us today. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Today, we are pleased to invite our brother Chris to deliver the sermon. He will be preaching on the ABCs of quenching deadly thirst. And this will be the last sermon in our series on how to get unstuck spiritually. Chris, over to you. Thanks, Wen. Good morning, everyone. I hope all of you guys are having a great morning uh, this Sunday uh, as we gather together to worship. There's an old fable, an old story about a crow. And the story goes that in the midst of a severe famine, when the weather was scorchingly dry and scorchingly hot, birds were having a really hard time finding something to drink. And so it was in the midst of this severe famine that a crow came across a pitcher with a little bit of water at the bottom. But the problem was that this pitcher was tall and the neck of the pitcher was really thin so that no matter how hard the crow tried, it couldn't get to the water. The crow thought that it was gonna die of thirst, but then it had an idea. It found some small pebbles lying around and took those small pebbles and started to throw them one by one into the pitcher. And as the pebbles filled the pitcher, the level of the water slowly rose higher and higher until eventually the water was high enough so that the crow could get a drink of that desperately needed water. Now this fable, like all other fables, has a lesson. And the lesson of this story is that when in crisis, when you're in trouble, if you use your head, if you use your brains, then you'll be able to help yourself out. You'll be able to find a solution. But yet, despite the crow's smart thinking, the crow still, hasn't, still has a fundamental problem, which is that the weather is still dry. The crow still hasn't addressed the, the fundamental issue that he's facing during this time, which is that water is extraordinarily scarce. And so even though the crow's smart thinking has allowed it to temporarily satisfy its thirst, it still will eventually become thirsty again. The crow's smart thinking still hasn't fixed the fundamental issues, the fundamental problems that it's facing during that situation. It's only provided it temporary respite. As Wen mentioned earlier, we're now in the final week of our sermon series entitled, How to Get Unstuck Spiritually. But we could have just as easily called this sermon series, How to Quench Your Thirst. Because you see, what does it exactly mean to be stuck spiritually? Perhaps it means feeling discontent with the way in which your life is going, feeling like things aren't the way that they should be, feeling that something's just not quite right with the way that you, your, your being is. Or maybe it's feeling unwell in our soul, in our spirits, in our minds, 
in our hearts or feeling like we just aren't growing in our relationship with God. During these times, we can feel, we, we feel like we need something to help us break out of that rut. During these times, we feel like we, we need to break free from the burdens which are, which are weighing us down on our shoulders, which are weighing us down on our backs. We thirst for vitality in our lives. We thirst for meaning. We thirst for purpose. We thirst for peace. We thirst for rest. And to those who feel like they're stuck spiritually, to those who feel like they're thirsting a seemingly unquenchable thirst, in our passage today, Jesus gives this invitation. If you are thirsty, come and drink. Come and drink, all who are thirsty, all who believe. It's an invitation to those of us who are struggling with life, who feel like things aren't settled. It's an invitation for us who feel like our souls are parched, who feel like our spirits are dry. And for those of us, the invitation is to come and drink, all who are thirsty, all who believe. And so today we're going to go through the three different steps, three different parts of the process of coming to drink. And these parts begin with the letters A, B, and C. We'll start with A, which stands for acknowledge. The first step is that we have to acknowledge our thirst for living water. Now, this seems kind of obvious. I mean, we wouldn't be talking about how to get unstuck spiritually if we didn't feel like we were stuck to begin with. We wouldn't be feeling like we were thirsty or talking about quenching our thirst if we didn't already feel the depth of our spiritual thirst. And yet, as we go about our lives, <clears throat> even as we're going about this COVID-19 crisis, there are times when we can suppress our thirst. There are times when we can distort our thirst into something else. There are times where we can basically tell ourselves that, you know, convince ourselves that we're not actually feeling thirst or convince ourselves that our thirst is actually something else than what it actually is. We can take the example of our actual physical thirst because we can actually convince our bodies that we are not thirsty when we're actually thirsty. There are times when we can feel thirsty and just not drink something. And over time, we, 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 if we don't drink something, our, our bodies get conditioned, our bodies get, uh, start to believe that water is scarce. And if water is scarce, then our bodies decide that there's no use in giving us that thirst instinct. There's no use in trying to convince us to drink. And so our bodies slowly make that thirst instinct less and less urgent because of the belief that water is scarce. I'm sure this has happened to you sometimes where you feel thirsty, but it happens to come at an inconvenient time. Maybe you're in the middle of a meeting with a large group of people or with a bunch of executives, or maybe you're in the middle of a super urgent task and you just can't take your mind off of it to go get something to drink because you're just on the verge of that breakthrough. Or maybe you're just having fun with a bunch of friends and don't want to leave their presence in order to get something to drink. And you know, a funny thing happens. Over time, as we're focused on whatever it is that we're doing, 
that need to drink something slowly disappears because we've suppressed that thirst instinct. We basically made it so that uh, the being thirsty is so normal that it's not something that comes immediately to mind. It's not something that's as urgent. Or consider that sometimes we can distort our thirst instinct. Most of us know that one of the best ways to quench our thirst is to drink a glass of water. And yet, sometimes water just doesn't have enough punch. Water is too plain. Water's too normal, too tasteless. We want something with a little bit more sugar, or we want something with a little bit of a bite, like, uh, like soda or something with carbonation. My wife will tell you, ever since this COVID-19 crisis has started, I've really constantly be cra been craving a nice ice cold glass of Coke. And there are times where I'm thirsty, but I really don't want water. So instead, I prefer something like seltzer with a little bit of flavor, with a little bit of uh, complexity compared to water. And the survey that we just did uh, shortly before this message started shows that I'm not alone. While two thirds of you are healthy and go to water when you're thirsty, that's your preference. One third of you, 23% soda, coffee, or tea, prefer something else. Because we've distorted our thirst. We've distorted our desire, our need for, to hydrate ourselves, to want something else other than what is best for us during those circumstances. Consider the woman at the well who Jesus meets, the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets in John chapter four. Jesus meets her at the town well at noon. And during this conversation that he strikes up with her, he offers her living water. Now, if I was the woman, I'd think, wow, this guy is really weird. First, he's a stranger and he's talking to me. And now he's talking about weird things like offering me living water that if I drink, I'll never thirst again. Maybe she thinks that Jesus is crazy. Or maybe she thinks that Jesus is a con man who's trying to get her to buy something. I think what we can possibly, probably safely assume is that the woman has no idea what Jesus is talking about with respect to living water, with respect to quenching her thirst. That the woman has no idea what kind of thirst Jesus is talking about much less the solution that Jesus is offering. Until that is, Jesus asks her the question, or, or requests that she go and fetch her husband. The woman answers, I have no husband, which is true. But then Jesus says to her and points out to her that in fact, she has had five husbands and that the man she is currently with is not her husband. Suddenly, the woman's thirst becomes extremely clear, both to her and to us. Suddenly, it becomes clear that the woman has been seeking to quench the thirst in her spirit through one broken relationship after another. Suddenly, it becomes altogether clear that the woman actually has a thirst, has a thirst for living water, 
and in understanding her thirst and in understanding how she has sought to quench that thirst, the woman becomes extremely uncomfortable. She becomes uncomfortable with her shame of those broken relationships, a shame which has caused her to come to the town well at noon in the middle of the scorching sun when no one else would be around because of her shame and her fear of being scorned and mocked by others. And so like this woman, we also have to face this uncomfortableness. We also have to acknowledge our thirst for living water. Like the alcoholic, the first step is to admit that we have a problem. The first step is to recognize our thirst for what it is, and also to recognize all the ways that we've been seeking to quench our thirst unsuccessfully. Perhaps seeking to satisfy our thirst through materialism, through buying things. Or maybe it's through gluttony or pornography. Or maybe we're seeking satisfaction through accomplishment in our work or in our service. Regardless of how we seek to satisfy through these different uh, temporary means, we have to recognize these means for what they can be. That all these different means can become false idols to us. False idols that we look to to satisfy that deep-seated thirst, that seemingly unquenchable thirst in us. We have to recognize that these false idols in the end only offer potentially temporary relief and in some cases actually even harm our thirst more than they help. The first step to coming and drinking all for all who thirst and all who believe is to acknowledge our thirst for living water. So A stands for acknowledge. We move on to B, which stands for believe. The second step is to believe in Jesus, the source of living water. Now, in our, in our passage today, John chapter 7, verses 37 through 38, if we read the surrounding context, we find out that Jesus said these words on the very last day of the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths was an eight-day festival. It was celebrated in the fall around harvest time. But we read in Leviticus 23 that it wasn't just a harvest festival. It wasn't just a feast uh, to, to celebrate everything that had been uh, harvested and reaped and gathered together. It was also intended to be a feast to help Israel remember their journey from Egypt, out of Egypt, when they were in slavery. We read in Leviticus 23 that during this feast, Israel was intended to, in their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they were intended to set up temporary shelters for them to live in for the duration of that week, for the duration of that feast. And those temporary shelters were supposed to remind them of the temporary shelters that Israel lived in as they were delivered from Egypt and as they left Egypt and went towards the promised land. <clears throat> now, during the Feast of Booths, there were two prominent rituals that were done every day of the feast in connection with the temple altar. The first of these rituals was a willow ritual. So people would basically go outside of the city of Jerusalem, gather together willow branches. Now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with willow trees, but you commonly see willow trees next to rivers because willow trees require a huge amount of water. 
And willow trees have these droopy, kind of thin, long, curly branches that lean over with these long legs. You know, sometimes you hear people describe them as weeping willows because they, they just had this droopy kind of look to them. And so people would gather the branches of these willow trees and these branches, they're not like these giant tree trunk type branches, right? They're, they're thin, they're curly, they're long, you know, maybe three to four feet long. And they gather these together in, in bunches and bring them back to the temple. And once they were back at the temple, they take these branches and they would beat the side of the temple altar. And as they struck the side of the temple altar, they would shout out, Hosanna, save us, O Lord. Save us, O Lord. This was one of the rituals that they did. The second ritual that, was, that featured prominently during the Feast of Booths was a water ritual. And so every morning during the feast, a procession led by priests would make it their way down from the Temple Mount, downhill about half a mile until they reached the Pool of Siloam. And at the pool, they would take an ornate ceremonial container, they would dip it into the pool, and they would draw out some water. And then they would carry this water in procession back uphill half a mile to the Temple Mount. And as they processed back, people would be blowing ram's horns. People would be singing psalms. It'd be a really boisterous, joyous celebration. And when they got to the temple altar, they would pour this water on the altar. The water would run all over the altar and then run from the altar onto the ground. Now, both the willow ritual and the water ritual done every single day during the Feast of Booths uh, were, some, uh, were done every single day. And some scholars see these two rituals as a means of calling on God to bring rainfall, to address the thirst of the land. You know, they'd see the willow as symbolic of how thirsty the land was. And they'd see the water poured out coming from the altar as calling on God to bring rainfall onto the land. And so in that context, it, it kind of makes sense that Jesus might give the invitation to come and drink because then Jesus would be saying, I am the one who's the source of that living water. I am the one who can actually quench the thirst of the land. And yet remember that the Feast of Booths was intended to help Israel remember about their journey from Egypt to the promised land. So some scholars actually think that the willow ritual and the water ritual actually point instead to the story in Exodus 17, when Moses struck the rock and water flowed from the rock. Let me refresh your memory about that story. Now, again, God has just delivered Israel from Egypt. We've talked about this before. God did all the you know, seven plagues on Egypt, the plague of turning the Nile River into blood, uh, the plague of gnats, the plague of locusts, the plague of hail, and so on and so on, demonstrating his miraculous power to Pharaoh as part of delivering Israel from Egypt. We've just seen how as, as Israel left Egypt, Pharaoh's armies pursued each, uh, the, the Israelites. And as just as the armies were about to overwhelm, overcome Israel, God parted the sea so that Israel could escape from the armies in dry land, also in miraculous fashion. And we've seen how when Israel was hungry, they complained and God miraculously provided for them bread in the form of manna, 
which would show up every morning with the morning dew. And so God has done all these amazing things showing who he is and how powerful he is and how much he cares about Israel, not because of anything they've done, but because of his grace shown to them and delivering them from their slavery. But when we get to Exodus 17, Israel starts to quarrel with Moses because they're thirsty. And this quarreling isn't just any kind of quarreling. I mean, this goes beyond the complaining that they were doing when they were hungry. They're quarreling to the point where they're basically bringing Moses up on charges. They're basically accusing Moses of bringing them out of Egypt only to kill them in the desert of thirst. They're actually prepared to execute Moses for his perceived crimes. And the thing is, when they're accusing Moses of these crimes, of, of taking them out of Egypt only to kill them, in effect, they're also accusing God of those crimes. And so how does God respond? He tells Moses to pass before the people, bringing along with him the elders of Israel and the staff that he used to turn the Nile River into blood. Israel is in big trouble. Because you see, in the Old Testament, most of the, almost always when you see the elders called together like that, it's for judgment. It was the role of the elders to judge. And the staff, the staff was the instrument of justice that God used to ultimately judge Egypt. For example, like turning the Nile River into blood to ultimately judge Egypt and the gods of Egypt. And so when God tells Moses to bring along the elders and his staff, he's basically saying, Israel, you are in trouble. You are about to be judged. Israel should have been quaking in their boots when, when this happened because they have seen the power of God. And yet, then there's a twist to the tale because then God tells Moses, I am going to stand before you on the rock and I want you, Moses, to take your staff to, and to strike that rock. And when you strike that rock, water will come out. God is figuratively standing on the rock, and God is figuratively telling Moses to strike God. God is basically telling Moses that he is going to take the judgment that Israel rightly deserves what they have done on himself so that Israel can have water. Moses is to figuratively strike God, judge God, so that Israel can be saved. And so when Jesus in John chapter seven in our passage today says, come and drink all who are thirsty and all who believe, he is basically saying that he is the temple altar, the temple altar, which was struck by those willow branches, the temple altar from which the water flowed. He is saying that he is the rock from Exodus 17 the rock which Moses had struck with, his, uh, with the judgment of his staff, the rock from which water came out in order to relieve Israel's suffering so that Israel could live. We're called to believe in Jesus, the source of living water. We're called to believe in Jesus, the one who bore our suffering on his shoulders so that we might not suffer. We're called to believe in Jesus, 
the one who took on our judgment upon himself so that we might not be judged. We're called to believe on Jesus who bore our brokenness in every way, shape, and form so that we could be healed. In John chapter 19, John records that as he was hanging on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. Now, I don't think John was just recording these words for the sake of recording those words. John recorded Jesus as saying, I thirst as he hung upon that cross because Jesus thirsted so that we don't have to thirst. Jesus bore all our suffering so that we could be healed. And so the second step of coming to drink, all who believe, all who thirst, is to believe in Jesus, the source of living water. And so we have, as the first step, we need to acknowledge our thirst for living water. We have as the second step, we need to believe in Jesus, the source of living water. But belief can't only be intellectual belief. Belief has to change the very way in which we go about our lives, the very way in which we live our lives. And so the third step, C, stands for come. It stands for come and drink those living waters. And this isn't easy. Because you see, for us to be able to come and drink those living waters requires us to let go of who we are. We can't come to those rivers of living waters and drink from those living waters unless we're willing to let ourselves be swept away by those rivers. It's not easy to come and drink. Throughout this entire sermon series, we've been going through different forms of spiritual disciplines to help us get unstuck spiritually. Disciplines like uh, prayer, like reading the Bible, like worship, Sabbath, service, giving, uh, confession, fellowshipping with one another. But the thing is, if we do these things the way that the Pharisees did them, if we do these things just so that others can see how great we are, or if we even do these things just so that we can feel a sense of accomplishment for doing what we think we're supposed to do, we've missed the point of the message. We've missed the point that the purpose of all these different spiritual disciplines is so that we can grow in relationship with God. It's so that we can know God, not just objectively, but relationally. It's so that we can experience the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If we fail to do that, if we just do them for the sake of a sense of accomplishment, then it'd be like going to a national park just for the sake of taking pictures, but not actually experiencing and basking in the natural beauty all around. It'd be like going on a date with your spouse or with your boyfriend and girlfriend and spending the whole time just staring at your phone, not talking with them, not being with them, but not actually being with them, only being with them physically, but spending your whole time looking at your screen. Or it'd be like coming to the river of living water and standing there and just looking at it, not actually drinking it, but just looking at it and studying it and examining it without actually tasting it 
without actually letting those life-giving waters come into us. C.S. Lewis describes this in his book, The Silver Chair, uh, which is the fourth book in the Chronicle of Narnia series, uh, one of the sequels to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And early on in this book, one of the characters, Jill Pohl, finds herself alone and finds herself really thirsty. And so as she feels like she's dying of thirst, she suddenly spies ahead of her a stream. And so she walks toward that stream because she's so thirsty and the waters look so good. But there's a problem because next to that stream is a ferocious lion. Now, if you've read The Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe or any of the books in the Narnia series, you know that this lion is Aslan, the, the Christ figure in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. But Jill doesn't know this. And so even though she's dying of thirst, she, she's worried about approaching the river because she's worried that if she approaches the river, she's going to be mauled by the lion. Until the lion says out loud, if you're thirsty, you may drink. And I'll read a little excerpt from The Silver Chair. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen a stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. And this is the invitation that we've been given, to come and drink all who are thirsty and all, all who believe. But it's not easy, because it comes at a cost. It comes at the cost of denying ourselves, of letting ourselves go, of submitting ourselves to Jesus. We have to submit our self-sufficiency. As we read in Ephesians, because it is by grace we have been saved through faith and not by our works. It is the gift of God. 
we have to let go of our self-control. As Jesus in Luke 9 said, anyone who seeks to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. And we have to let go of our self-righteousness. We have to allow our desires, our thoughts, our actions to be influenced, to be changed, to be transformed by Jesus. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's not easy because we want to have control. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to uh, be the one to make decisions about what's right and what's wrong for our lives. And yet, what we read in the silver chair is that if we submit ourselves, if we deny ourselves, and take the invitation to come and drink, all who are thirsty and all who believe, we'll find that the living water that Jesus offers us is better than the coldest, most refreshing glass of water that we can think of when we're thirsty. Because it's a water that can quench our thirst for eternity. Come and drink, all who are thirsty, all who believe. To do this, we first have to acknowledge our thirst for living water. We then have to believe in Jesus, the source of living water. We then have to come and drink that living water. In 2007, there was a 29-year-old man who went on a guided hike in the Utah desert. Guided hike, meaning there were guides who were with him, bringing him to work uh, the different places in that desert. And after 10 hours of hiking, during which he didn't drink a single thing, this 29-year-old man collapsed and died from dehydration. It was a tremendous tragedy. But the biggest tragedy of all was that those guides who were around, them, around him, those guides were all carrying bottles of emergency water that weren't even for themselves, but were for emergencies. And so the, what was a bigger tragedy was that this man could easily have been saved because there was water all around him. And this is the invitation that Jesus gives us. It's an open invitation to all. It's an op open invitation to each of us to come and drink, all who are thirsty, all who believe. It's an invitation to engage in the various spiritual disciplines that we've talked about again and again, because each time we engage with God through prayer, through reading scripture, through service, through confession, etc., we do so expecting to encounter Jesus over and over again. And as we go through this process of encountering Jesus, we find ourselves in the presence, the transforming presence of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we find ourselves, and when we allow ourselves to submit and to be in that transforming presence, we find that we are given that living water, that living water that quenches our deep down eternal thirst, that quenches our thirst forever. We find ourselves in the refreshing presence of God, the presence that, that takes away all our thirst as our eyes are fixed upon him. Come and drink all who are thirsty, all who believe. 
this is the invitation that Jesus gives us. And this is the invitation that I urge you all, whether you have been a Christian for a long time or are not a Christian, to accept with open arms each and every day to drink from those living waters which Jesus gives us. Let us pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you because you are the almighty God who created all things, the mountains and the hills and the seas. You are the mighty God who is righteous and holy. And in our brokenness and by your grace, you are the mighty God who took on judgment on himself, who took on our brokenness so that we could have living water. And so, God, I pray that you would show your presence to us uh, as we pray to open this service, as we seek to be present to you, Lord, you have promised to be present to us. And we pray that you would show us your presence, your transforming presence, that you would shape our desires, that you would shape our thoughts, that you would shape our minds, that you would shape our hearts, that you would shape our souls and spirits, that we might taste of this living water that you offer us this living water that you offer freely because of your love and because of your grace for us. That you might take these burdens that we carry on our backs, these burdens that we carry, especially during this crisis, Lord, this, these worries that we carry, that you might take them from us because we trust you, Lord, and we know that you are a good God who is sovereign and who ultimately prevails. God, help us to come to your river of living water. Help us to drink, that we can be transformed, that we might have peace, that we might have rest. In your precious son's name, amen.